Uh, when I was uh, in school, we had these things called Cliff's Notes. Do you have Cliff's, Cliff's Notes? Okay, you have them here. I, I, I saw that they're available online, uh, uh, but they're, they're excellent. These little study guides, right, they, they kind of help you grasp the understanding of a, of a book, uh, a piece of literature maybe, without having to read the whole book. Um, uh, so like Romeo and Juliet, for example, you could read Cliff's Notes and you get an idea of uh, uh, the main characters, the main, the main plot, uh, without having to read the entire play. And, and certainly going to college, there were a lot of students who uh, <laughs> lived off of Cliff's Notes. And I think I only consulted Cliff's Notes one time uh, because I really enjoyed reading literature. But probably the most helpful thing about Cliff's Notes is that it would give you the, the main point of the entire book. And that's what we come to today in Hebrews chapter 8. And I'm not just telling you that because I believe that, but I'm telling you that because the author tells us that uh, here in chapter 8. He gives us the main point of everything that he has been saying so far. In fact, when I did the introduction to Hebrews way back in in January now, I I considered starting here in chapter 8 to say, here's the main point, and then kind of backing from there. I opted instead to kind of keep the theme. The theme, yes, the theme is Jesus is better, and that is the theme of the whole book. But you have to keep that in mind with the actual uh, point of why Jesus is better. Why is that? Look at chapter 8, verses 1 to 2. I just want to draw this out really briefly as an introduction. It says this. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So it's the high priestly role of Jesus. That is the main uh, point. Meaning that this, is, this idea of Jesus as priest, if you remember last week I asked if anyone even, even once during the week thought of Jesus as their high priest and not one hand went up, it shows that it's a hard concept for us New Testament believers to get into the mindset. Uh, high priest, in fact, we, we recoil at the idea of priests. We don't need priests. We have a mediator. That's right, you do, which is a priest, <laughs> and his name is Jesus. And that's the idea here. And you have to remember that that is the main point of everything. So, taking that idea that Jesus as high priest is the main point of everything, think back to some of the things we talked about. In fact, think back to that pause. Do you remember the pause we took in chapter 5? The author has introduced the idea of high priest. He wanted to go into talking about the high priesthood more. He mentioned this guy, Melchizedek, and then he stopped. He took a pause. And the reason he took a a pause is because there were people in his audience, in the, the church, who had become dull of hearing, spiritually lazy. And he said that they were, they were in danger of falling away. Do you remember all that? That whole chapter 5 uh, section. Well, let me ask you something. If Jesus is the perfect high priest, and the high priesthood of Jesus has really been in picture all along, can you come to him as, and, and have him as your high priest and still fall away? Would that not make him an imperfect priest like the Old Testament? Can you then lose your salvation? And I would say, no. The true believer doesn't fall away precisely because of Jesus' high priestly work. That's how important this idea is. And that's why the author was pushing those who were spiritually lazy to, to, to come to full understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done. They needed to come to the only high priest who could keep them falling away. They wanted to go back to Levitical priests. 
because the priesthood was still in, in effect. The temple was still around, at least for five more years, and that was still happening. And they were kind of being drawn back to that. But that Old Testament Levitical system has nothing to offer them anymore. They needed to come fully to Christ. So we are now in a section that is fully engrossed in the idea of Jesus's priesthood. The new priesthood is what we looked at at the last couple of weeks. A new one was needed because the old one was imperfect. It had inherent weakness in it in that it was sinful and it had weak, sinful men to lead it. They were the priests and they had become priests through divine instruction. God had commanded that the the priests would be through Aaron and through the tribe of Levi And they also um, weren't perfect, and so they couldn't uh, maintain their priesthood. They would die, and then more priests would take over. And then they were sinners themselves. So when they would come and offer a sacrifice for the people, well, they had to offer a sacrifice for themselves. But when you think of Jesus, he was not of Aaron. He was not of the tribe of Levi, and he didn't need to be. He came about in a different manner. He didn't come about by uh, a divine instruction. He came about by a divine oath. God commanded that he would make the Messiah a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He's an eternal priest. And last week we looked at not only that, is that true, but that he's also unlike men. He's, He's not sinful. He's not fallen like the priests of old. But instead, back in verse 26, and this is what we looked at last week, he is a high priest who is fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. So Jesus, because of those things, he's able to save to the uttermost. Do you remember that? That means save completely, save perfectly. Through Jesus, there is perfect salvation. And we sang a lot of songs about that today. So because Jesus is a better high priest, then logically it follows then that he is a a mediator of a better covenant. And that really begins to take us into this new section. This is the new covenant we're talking about. And it's kind of a part one because it's really an introduction to it, and we'll get more into it next week. But the new covenant is what we're looking at, and we're looking at the first 13 verses this morning, this afternoon. (laughs) So let's look at it. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. 
I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this wonderful passage of Scripture. There is much, much here. And Lord, we just pray for your uh, spirit to be with us, to guide us into truth. There's deep, deep things to understand here. But Lord, your spirit can help us to understand. And I pray that that you do that today for us, that you'd open up our hearts, or that we might receive these wonderful truths that you have for us today. We, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, here, just notice verse 1. Going back to that, the author here said that, that we have, we, we have uh, such a high priest. That is currently have. We currently have a high priest. That means Jesus has come, he's now here, and he is acting as high priest today. That's his role in your life today. And if that's so, then where does he operate from? That would be kind of the thought. The Jews still have the temple. It's still, it's, you know, it's right outside. It's right down the road. Uh, and and, and he's, he's saying here that, that, well, Jesus is a new high priest. Well, where, where's he ministering from? How is he doing that? If it's not in the temple, then, then where is it? And so what the author is going to do here, really kind of to introduce us to this new covenant idea, is look at his position and his place. So as an introduction uh, here, he looks at these two aspects of the better priestly service of Jesus. So the better priestly service of Jesus takes us first to see that his position is one of a, a heavenly seat. He has a heavenly seat. And we've kind of looked at this concept before. But in verse 1, it says, this is the main point of the things we're saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So, so he's seated at the right hand of a throne of the majesty. Now, this word majesty is a fun word, megalosune, and it means greatness, but also specifically divinity. And we saw this word already back in chapter 1. And I just want to remind you of chapter 1, verse 3. If you just turn back there briefly, because we didn't really talk about the majesty aspect of this so much. But I want you to see verse 3 of chapter 1. This is all about Jesus. And it says, "...who, being the brightness of his glory, in the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high." So there it is. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the divinity on high. That is God the Father. Though God the Father is seated there, and Jesus is now seated at his right hand. And this is significant for a couple of reasons. The right hand of the throne was a position or a place of honor and of power and authority. That right hand is so important. Now, how did Jesus get there? 
Well, it told us that he himself purged our sins, so that's him sacrificing himself for us. And then he sat down at the right hand. But you know, there's a better picture of this, and it's in Revelation. And I want to take you to Revelation chapter 5. Keep your finger in Hebrews 8, obviously. We'll come back to that. But Revelation 5 is really, really a great picture of this. In Revelation 4, we're taken in a vision of John to the throne room of God, and it continues into chapter 5. And in chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, we see something pretty amazing. Now, this, this, this scroll has appeared, this, this, this scroll, and it's in the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So he who sits on the throne is God the Father. We just saw that. But there's this scroll, and he's holding it in his hand. And, and people are asking, well, who, who is worthy enough to open up that scroll? Well, now, beginning of chapter 5, look at verse 6. It says this, and I looked... And behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, this is obvious for for many of us because we know Jesus as the lamb who was slain. Slain before the foundation of the world is what scripture says. But he is the lamb, and that's what John sees. He sees a lamb as though it had been slain, meaning he bears the marks. And Jesus, when he rose from the dead, showed us that he had the marks. He said, look at my hands and look at my side. It is I. So that is clearly Jesus. Now it says that he has some odd stuff. I know, seven horns and seven eyes, and that's a little weird. But listen, that's symbolic. Seven horns are, are symbols of power, authority. And seven is the perfect number. Jesus, the lamb, has perfect power, perfect authority. And the eyes represent omniscience, all-seeing, all-knowing. That's the spirit of God, it says there. He's the perfect all-knowing one. So the lamb is the one that can take the scroll because he is all-powerful and all-knowing. He has all power, and he can take that scroll. Now, here's what I wanted to draw your attention to. Look at verse 7 again. Then he came and he took the scroll out of which hand? The right hand of whom who sat on the throne. When Jesus was seen as a lamb that was led to the slaughter, he rose from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. And when he came to the right hand of the Father, there he goes to take that scroll. It's the title deed to the earth. The earth and all that's in it belongs to him once again. Now that's a whole other sermon. That's Revelation 5. But I wanted you to see that he takes it from the right hand. And then look at the response. I can't read it all, so go down to verse 11. Look at the response from all the onlookers in heaven. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. There it is again. To receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And then the four living creatures said, amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshiped him who lives forever and ever. That is Jesus, the high priest, who is at the right hand of the father. 
And the right hand of the Father is a, is a position of power and honor. And the, those in heaven are saying, you are worthy of that power and that honor and that authority. It belongs to you because you are at the right hand of the Father and you are the lamb that was slain. That's what placed you there. Incredible, incredible stuff. And that's really Jesus' answered prayer. Jesus prayed that that would happen because he left that place, folks. He was there and he left it to come to crummy earth. (laughs) He came here. What a pit. And he walked this earth for 33 years. He's part of it. And I I don't blame him for praying this in John 17, 5. He says, and now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He wasn't dead yet. But he was on his way to Calvary. By the next morning, he would be crucified. And he says, now, Father, you're going to glorify me together. Put me back there. And he's there. So he sits in that position of honor and power. But he sits there as a ministering high priest. Now, John had a a vision of a high priest before this vision in Revelation 5. It's in Revelation 1. Just go back to Revelation chapter 1 and look at it. Because this describes... The garments of a high priest. Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. Now listen, folks. This is Jesus, but seen in his high priestly role. That word garment there, Okay, the Septuagint, so the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses the same word garment here of the old priestly garments of the high priest. Jesus is dressed as high priest, and the golden sash clinches it. In fact, it says that he saw seven golden lampstands that were in the midst of him. That's incredible, too, because the lampstands represent the churches, according to verse 20. You don't have to believe me. Verse 20 says that. So he functions as high priest among his churches, folks, today. He's your high priest. You don't need to go to a priest. You don't need to go to confession. You have one. And guess where he is? At the right hand of the Father, not behind some box, not behind some some cloth hiding from you so he can't look you in the eye later on when you've confessed your sins. Oh, I know about you. He's in the presence of God the Father. Don't go to a high priest. You have one. He functions as a high priest for you today. His heavenly seat is significant for another reason, which we have already touched on in chapter one, so I won't dwell on it too long, but go back to Hebrews 8 again. Uh, it's, it's a picture of his finished work. You could, I've mentioned this before. The work of a priest was never done. There were no seats in the tabernacle. There were no seats in the temple. The priestly work was a constant, constant work. They didn't have a break. They didn't take fiver. They worked constantly. And Hebrews chapter 10 says this in verses 11 and 12. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, speaking of Jesus, after he'd offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus sat down. I love that. When did he sit down? Well, when he purged our sins, back in chapter 1 of Hebrews, it says, um, then he sat down. It was the lamb as though it had been slain, who took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And that's why when he was on the cross, folks, he said, it is finished. The work is is finished. 
Now, let me just clarify one aspect of this. Jesus is seated today in relation to his atoning work for the sins of of mankind, meaning there's no other sacrifice to be made. He doesn't have to work any longer to do that for you. But remember, we've already learned some other interesting things, haven't we? According to verse 25, Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. He's our interceding priest. We've also heard that Jesus is able to help those who are being tempted, that he's able to sympathize with those who are weak. But if he's seated and his work is finished, well, then how is he still active as helper or intercessor? Well, there is a wonderful account in Acts chapter 7. You don't have to turn there. In Acts chapter 7, they chose seven men to serve the church in order to relieve the burden off the apostles. Seven men that would serve the church, and those men had to be full of uh, the Holy Spirit in in their role of service. That would be modern-day deacons today. And Stephen was one of those men. And we're told in Scripture that he was full of faith and power, and he did great signs and wonders among the people. He was a powerful man according to the Holy Spirit's work in him. But because of this, he was falsely accused of blasphemy, and he was taken before the council for judgment. And in his address to the Jewish leaders, he condemned them, he says, for resisting the Holy Spirit. You always resist the Holy Spirit just like your fathers did. And it made them crazy. Scripture says that that they were cut to the heart. They were furious, and they gnashed their teeth at him. And, and I think it's further evidence that he was right, because you know, wouldn't be, you know, spirit-filled people wouldn't be angry like that. But there's a, a, a verse, that, so right after they gnash out at him in anger and fury, this is what it says, and it's Acts 7, 55. But he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Not sitting, standing. And he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Folks, as our Savior, as our Redeemer, Jesus is seated. As our helper and intercessor, he stands. He's up, baby. He's not, he's not lounging having a coffee. He's there ready to work for you, interceding for you. That's amazing. Those are fantastic truths we come here. Jesus, he has a new priestly seat, and he ministers from a, a position of honor and power, and he ministers from a new place as well. And that place, his place, is a heavenly sanctuary. Look at it in verse 2. Go back to Hebrews 8. Look at verse 2. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Now, this is really fascinating. Now, that word sanctuary is hagion. It means holy place. So this is the holy place. It's used 11 times in the New Testament. And every time it's used, it's in Hebrews. So this is a word that's unique to this book, this Hagion. And this is the first appearance of it. So we're going to get used to it. We're going to see it a lot more. Now, this Hagion, this sanctuary, is also called, in verse 2, the true tabernacle. You see it there? So the sanctuary, or the true tabernacle, is not earthly. That's what he's saying. It's heavenly. He says it was built by the Lord and not man. So the earthly sanctuary, or tabernacle, also called in the Old Testament, the tabernacle of meeting was built by man, wasn't it? It was built according to divine instruction from God, which, which he's going to mention in a, in a moment. But the verse you'll find it in is Exodus 25, 8. And this is, this is God saying, And let them make me a sanctuary 
that I may dwell among them. Why did God want a sanctuary? To dwell among the people. He wanted, to, he, wanted, he wanted that sanctuary to represent his presence among the people. But there was a certain way that was going to happen. He couldn't, God just couldn't plop himself there because he would consume everyone because of his holiness. He had to have a sanctuary, have a place where his glory could dwell. And I want to remind you of a picture of the tabernacle. Could I, could I show you the tabernacle real quick? You might remember it, right? This, this is it. You've got the, the courtyard around there. But the tabernacle itself is just the, the little structure there. That, that's all it was. Because remember, they're, they're wandering around in the wilderness. And, and when God said it's time to move, they had to pack all that up and carry it. So this is not stone and mortar and brick. This, this is cloth and, and wood, all right? But in that tabernacle, you might remember how it breaks down, but, but there's a couple of sections on there. There's three, actually. But, but God is in the back part, right? That's where his presence would, would dwell, in the holy place, in the holy of, of holies. So, so we're going to look at that in a, in a few weeks because he'll talk about it, so I don't want to spoil that. But I just wanted to remind you what the, the tabernacle uh, looked like. Now, that tabernacle, we're told, wasn't the true tabernacle. So that's, does that mean that was a false tabernacle? And that's not what he means by the other one being true. He means that this one is a temporary one. It was an inadequate one. It wasn't the full dwelling place of God. Where does God dwell? In the heavenlies. He has a heavenly abode. But when he came to deal with man, he dwelt in a sanctuary. What was that called? You remember that word when we were looking at Old Testament? Types, right? An Old Testament type finds its antitype or its counterpart in the New Testament. That pointed to something else. That represented something else. There was a heavenly reality to that earthly structure. That is the idea. And even all of the Levitical priests, they ministered in that earthly tabernacle. And later on in the temple, when the temple was was built. Well, this is what it's saying. Jesus ministers in a different sanctuary. He doesn't minister in something like that. It's it's in the tabernacle. Notice what it says in verse 2, which the Lord erected and not man. Remember that tabernacle? Moses built that and, and the rest, right, they built that. Now in a moment, we're going to look at the difference between the two. But first, the author is simply trying to establish that Jesus uh, serves from a different position, the right hand of the Father. He's seated there and from a different place, a heavenly sanctuary. So think about this. If Jesus has a heavenly seat and he ministers from a, a heavenly sanctuary, well, what kind of work is he doing? Well, what does that look like? Well, that's the question that he begins to answer in verse 3. Look at verse 3. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. Well, that's really important, isn't it? So it's fine that Jesus is a minister. He's a minister, of a, a priest of a true tabernacle. Uh, every priest, however, has to offer gifts and sacrifices. That's the ministry of the high uh, priest. And the, and the gifts, that would express your, your thanksgiving. Those are your praises to God. We thank you. Here's an offering of thanksgiving. The sacrifices were to atone for sins. And the high priest offered those to atone for the people, but also for their own sins. But since Jesus is also a high priest, he's saying, well, well Jesus also, if he's, if he's working as a priest, he has to offer something as well. Well, what does Jesus offer? Well, the writer already told us. Now, you got to remember, we read this and we have a week's break and then we come back and we read it again, where this would have just been read, right? So back in chapter 7, just a few verses earlier, he already spilled the beans. He already said what Jesus offered. Look at verse 27. 
He does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So there, he's already told us. He's, he said he doesn't need to go do it all the time like the other priests. He did it. He did it once for all. And what did he offer? He offered up himself. Well, that, that kind of sacrifice, that's, that's quite different. That was not the kind of sacrifice uh, prescribed in the law, was it? Well, that's what he says in verse 4. Look at verse 4. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, (laughs) since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. See, the earthly priests had a set prescription of what they were to offer. You know the parts in Scripture. It's the parts you skip when you're reading the Bible through the year, right? You get to like, uh, yeah, Leviticus, okay. Yeah, uh, more sacrifice, yeah, sacrifice. uh, Okay, yeah, yeah. You go through all that part, right? I don't want to read about any more sacrifices, but isn't it? It's almost unending, isn't it? This is how you're to sacrifice this. This is how you're to wash this. This is how you're to dress this. I mean, it's just on and on and on and on it goes. It seems like it's never ending. They had to sacrifice according to the law. They had to stick to that. But Jesus offered up himself. Well, this sounds like a new priestly ministry to me. It's certainly unlike any priestly ministry on earth. He's doing something different. So Jesus couldn't be a priest on earth. One of the reasons we already talked on, he is not from the tribe of Levi. You wanted to be a priest, you didn't send an application. You, you had to be from the tribe of Levi. And if you want to be the high priest, you're coming, you're coming from the descendant of Aaron. And he already said that back in chapter 7 as well, that we know Jesus couldn't be a priest that way because he was of the tribe of Judah. No one could argue that. He said this well-known information. So he couldn't be on earth a priest because he's not from the tribe of Levi, and he doesn't offer gifts and sacrifices according to the law. He gave a one-time sacrifice, which the author is going to elaborate on in chapter 9. So we'll wait on that. But what about gifts? You ever think about that? What about thanksgiving, offerings, praise, gifts of worship? How do those things go to God? Well, listen, that's part of the continuing ministry of Jesus as our high priest. He is our intercessor and mediator even for those things. Listen, none of us can praise, worship, obey, serve God without Jesus. All of that goes through him. No Israelite could offer a gift of thanksgiving or a sacrifice to God without a high priest. You you, you couldn't do it. And listen, Christians are no different. You cannot approach God without Christ. The reason you can approach God is because of Christ. He is our high priest. And some of you are saying already, hold on, hold on. Scripture says that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. You just taught that a few weeks ago. I say, yes, it does say that. And right before that, it gives us the reason we can boldly approach the throne of grace. (laughs) Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us come boldly before the throne of grace. Why can we come before the throne of grace? Because we have such a high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. So listen, when we praise and we give thanks to God, it is always through our high priest. Let me show you an example of Colossians 3.17. Look at this. And whatever you do in word or deed, okay, whatever, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through who? Him, Jesus. Whatever you do. Word or deed, you give thanks to God. You give thanks to God, but it goes through Jesus. Amazing. We give thanks, but it goes through him. That's why we end our prayers. In Jesus' name I pray. 
Amen. Don't you teach your kids? In Jesus' name we pray. That's not just a tag like I think we're supposed to say this. It's in Jesus' name we pray because it's in Jesus' name I can talk to the Father. He's not going to talk to Kevin. He's going to talk to me through Jesus because he's my mediator. Ephesians 5.20 says, Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Now, listen, I'm not trying to split hairs and say like, so you can't talk to God. That's not what I'm saying. We do talk to God. I go, oh Lord, God, I talk to him. But why I can confidently believe is I, that those prayers reach him. Why? Because I have Jesus. They go through him. Does that make sense? He's, he's our mediator. He's our bridge to God. If, if we could just go to God, why do we need Jesus? You see, we need him constantly. It's not just, oh, I needed him that one time. I'm glad he saved me, and now I got my fire insurance ticket. And now, that's not how it works, folks. He's your high priest today. He constantly works for us. So the high priestly ministry, if you look at it, it's completely different. But he still functions as a priest, yeah? Now, the reason that his ministry is different is because the earthly priests, they only served, and this is really fun, the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. Do you see that there in verse 5? Look at it who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Now, this verse really sheds a lot of light on everything. The Old Testament uh, tabernacle, the picture we just looked at, the sanctuary, that was only a copy. It was only a shadow of a heavenly thing. Listen, when Moses was given divine instructions to build the tabernacle, it was according to the pattern that was shown him. That's what it says uh, here. In fact, uh, here, what we're having is a quote from the Old Testament. Remember, the author of Hebrews likes to go to the Old Testament to bring up support. And here he's quoting, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. That is a quote directly from Exodus 25, 40. Now, it refers in there, not just to the tabernacle. Did you notice that? See that you make all things, not just the tabernacle. It says, see that you make all things according to uh, the pattern. Well, well, what are the all things? Well, have you gone back and read Exodus lately? Do you, do you remember when those things start to come out? Actually, it doesn't start with the tabernacle, which is very strange, and I'll talk about that in a few weeks. It doesn't start that. You would think it would. If we were to design you know, stuff, we would say, okay, this is what we want to, we want to build a house. We'll start with that. And here's how I want it to look. And then once the house is built, then you start to build the furnishings. Okay, and this is how I want my kitchen to look, and this is how I want my bed to look. But that's not what Scripture gives us. Scripture says, and there's an ark. And I want you to build this ark. And here's the dimensions. Here's how it should look. Oh, and there's a table with showbread. Oh, here, and here's a lampstand. Now build these things. You're like, okay, great. Now what do I do with them? Oh, I'll show you. I want you to build a tabernacle. That's the order Scripture gives us to it. So he says, see that you make all things according to the pattern. So listen, everything was a pattern, everything that he made. In fact, earlier in Exodus 25, God was a little more specific, but it wasn't quoted here in Hebrews. Exodus 25, 9 says this, according to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. So there it is. So not only did the tabernacle have a pattern, but so did that ark of the testimony, so did the table for the showbread, and so did the golden lampstand. So everything had a pattern, and Moses was shown the patterns, it says, when he was up on a mountain. (laughs) 
What, what is that about? Well, later in Exodus 26, God again makes reference to the pattern shown on the mountain to Moses. It says in Exodus 26, 30, And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which you were shown on the mountain. So twice God commands Moses to follow a pattern that was shown him on a mountain. Well, what mountain? Well, we're told in Exodus 24, and you don't have to turn there, but Moses goes up to a mountain. He sees a cloud covering the mountain. Remember that? It's the glory of God, and the children of Israel are freaked out. They don't, they don't want to go near it. They're like, you, you go talk to him. You, know, you, you go on up, Moses. And, and, and Moses goes up there in the sight of all of them, and it says that the glory of the Lord like, was like a consuming fire. So, of course, nobody wants to go in there. But Moses says, yeah, I'll go up there. And he goes up there in the eyes of all the children. And in verse 18, it says this. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, it was during those 40 days and 40 nights that Moses was shown a pattern. Don't you kind of wish you were there? I kind of wish I could just get a glimpse. Like, you know, I talked to Moses. What, what kind of pattern did you get? Because lots of... You got lots of speculation has come for the years of what these patterns would have been like. Um, you, you can read in the Talmud because there was a lot of speculation for the rabbis, of course. And they, they believe this, that an ark of fire, because remember, that's one of the patterns, the, the ark. The table of fire, the table of showbread, and the candlestick of fire came down from the heavens. And then Moses saw them and reproduced them, right? But that's speculation. They're just saying these patterns came down. You can even read about some rabbis believing that angel Gabriel came down and he had a, a workman's apron on and he had these little models of the tabernacle and the ark and, you know, he had these little models. Hey, here, make these, Moses, right? I don't know. I, I don't know what the pattern uh, was, but we, we do know that it finds its significance here in Hebrews because he talks about the pattern. The earthly tabernacle, it was only a copy. It was only a shadow of a real thing. In fact, look at that word copy, hupadigma, <laughs> fun word. It is a representation. It is an example. It's just a, it's just a figure, that word copy. That word copy was used in chapter 4, and it was rendered example. All right, he was given an example. Here, it, 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 make it like this. It isn't meant to communicate an exact replica. I don't want to get the picture like, oh, this is exactly what you're going to find. In heaven, what it's meant to be is an example, a representation. Uh, shadow is used here. Well, think about what a shadow is. It's just it's an outline. Right? You'll get all the detail from a shadow. You can see the shape or the outline of uh, somebody, but it has no substance in itself. It's a copy. It's a shadow. In fact, chapter ten helps us with the understanding of shadow because it uses it there in a way that's a little more clear. Hebrews chapter ten verse one says, "For the law." having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. That, that help with the word shadow there? You see, the shadow, it's, it's a shadow of good things to come. It's not the very image of the things to come. So I don't want us to get the idea that, that this, this tabernacle is representing an actual, literal, physical tabernacle. You're looking at that picture we looked at and say, wow, how are we all fitting in there? right? That's not, that's not the picture. In fact, in Revelation 21 gives us a picture of the heavenly city, doesn't it? It's quite different. No, it's not. A, the, the heavenly reality is, is, is represented by God's, God's presence. It's, it's, it's heaven. That's where Jesus ministers. It's the heavenly abode. 
the presence of God. He's at his right hand in the heavens, it says. And that is his tabernacle. David even writes about that, right? The heavens are his tabernacle. That's where he dwells. And because Jesus ministers from a heavenly seat and in the heavenly sanctuary, it's evident that he has a superior ministry. That's his point. Then those earthly priests, and therefore, he must be a mediator of a better covenant. Do you see that? He must be a mediator of a better covenant. Look at verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Now, this is the first time in Hebrews that Jesus is referred to as a mediator. What is a mediator? It's a a go-between, isn't it? Right? He's a go-between. And he's supposed to represent both parties. That's the idea of a mediator. But the Old Testament priests, think about them. They weren't true mediators. They couldn't be true mediators because, because they could represent man, but they could not represent God. They only represented man. In fact, they went to God on behalf of men. You think about uh, the Old Testament prophets. They were, in a way, mediators. They took the word of God to man, but they couldn't represent God. So there were no perfect, true mediators in the Old Testament. They were also copies and shadows. Do you see that? They were incomplete. They were copies of the true mediator that were to come. Not false, meaning they they were evil in some way. They just were copies. They could not represent both parties. But Jesus comes, and he is a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. You see, the better covenant is the new covenant. This is what we're talking about. It's the new covenant. You and I stand today in the new covenant. We live today under a new covenant. Aren't you grateful for that? Because you think about all that the old covenant did. It didn't really accomplish anything permanent. It was all temporary. It was all external. It was all based on outside things because ultimately they pointed to something that would come. It would be perfect. That new covenant is what we needed. But if a new covenant were to come, then we need someone to be a mediator that can represent both parties. Now, how can Jesus, the Son of God, represent both parties? He had to also come as a man. I don't know how people can believe that Jesus didn't come fully as a man. Because he didn't come fully as a man, then you don't have a high priest who is a true mediator because he cannot represent you. But, But earlier, the author says, you do have a high priest who can represent you. He is tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. Therefore, he understands us because he became a man. But he also can represent God. He began in that heavenly tabernacle. Incredible to think that he left that glory, the right hand of the Father, and came to mediate a new and better covenant for us. I had originally planned to go into the better covenant section today, verses 7 to 13. Um, And I'm going to hold off. Um, because we took a little longer to go through this, and I'm glad. I hate speeding through this stuff. It's so juicy, isn't it? Yeah. You have to like, wipe your chin after this stuff. Like, oh, yes. Good stuff there. But listen, we have a better covenant, and this is what I tantalize you with, dangle a little thing here. We have a better covenant because it comes with better promises. God's promises aren't bad. 
I, I don't want to set this up as God. What he promised the Old Testament was, was bad, right? They fulfilled a purpose. They were temporary. But the promises that we have in the new covenant are incredible. What we're going to look at next week as we look at this new covenant are the incredible, better promises that come to you and I in the new covenant through our mediator, Jesus Christ, who is the author of our salvation. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today. And Lord, I thank you that we even slowed down and took our time with such a wonderful section of scripture. What, what incredible truths are, are here. So, so deep these things are, even taking us back into the Old Testament to see, see how all of your word connects together. As we see the history of Israel and their wanderings in the wilderness and the purpose of the sacrifices and the tabernacle, how all these things point to the perfection that was to come in the new covenant. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you are our high priest, that we can come to our heavenly father boldly through you, that we can speak to him as a father. We can cry out, Abba, Father, because we have a high priest. You have brought us to God because you functioned as a priest in atoning for our sins, and you continue to function as a priest, as our great helper and intercessor. And we, we thank you, Lord. Thank you for these great truths today. I pray that these things would keep us nourished and fed this week, and you bring us back next week as we look into the wonderful, rich truths of the new covenant. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just stand with us, and we'll sing a closing song.